Christ's program for the faith and his kingdom was for both to advance rapidly and quickly become a worldwide religion. The church would multiply its number and spread to the far reaches of the known world within the first century of its existence. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. God would use Peter to launch his church, Philip to carry it beyond the walls of Jerusalem, and Paul to extend it to the ends of the earth. What would be the secret of its success? Listen now as Dr. Boyce reveals the nature of the kingdom and the reason it has flourished against all odds. We began a study of the book of Acts, and we looked in a general way at the first 11 verses. I want to return to several verses of that section this evening, that portion that comes in the middle that we call the Great Commission, Acts version of that, and study it in more detail. And that's because these verses are so very important, because they're critical for an understanding of the book of Acts, and also because they're critical for understanding the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ generally. In the first seven chapters, we have a portion of the book that corresponds to the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem. And during those days, Peter is the chief articulator of the faith. Beginning with chapter 8 through chapter 12, you have the middle portion of this uh, transition period where the gospel expands under persecution beyond Jerusalem into Judea and to Samaria, and there you have a new cast of characters introduced. Philip figures quite prominently in that section, then Peter occurs again. And then, beginning with chapter 13 and continuing to the very end, you have what is clearly the expansion of the preaching of the gospel throughout the entire Roman world. And in that section, as we well know, the apostle Paul is prominent. So, as I say, it's worth returning to these verses, if for no other reason than because they give us an overview, an outline of the book of Acts. But it's not chiefly for that that I want to study them. They're important also because they give a plan for Christian witnessing and preaching which has made Christianity a world religion. Now, it's true that the other versions of the Great Commission do the same thing. In John's Gospel, the version of the Great Commission that we have there stresses the witness of Christ's disciples in the world. Jesus says in his great prayer to the Father in John 17, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so send I them into the world. But you see, the emphasis of that is not so much upon their going into all the world, though it certainly includes that, as it is upon the pattern of their ministry. Christians are to be in the world as Jesus was in the world. That's the emphasis. Or again, if you go back to Matthew's gospel in the best-known version of the Great Commission, there you have reference to making disciples among all the nations. That embraces the same idea. And yet the emphasis in that section is not upon that, but rather upon the authority of Jesus Christ on the basis of which we receive that commission. 
So Jesus begins it by saying, all authority in heaven and earth is committed unto me. Then he tells them what they should do. And then he says, as he wraps it up, and remember, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So his authority and empowering is the central idea, and it embraces everything else. Now, when we turn, as we do tonight, to these seventh and eighth verses of Acts 1, we find that the emphasis here is clearly upon the world mission. Jesus says that they're to receive power from the Holy Spirit, and when that happens, they're to be as witnesses, and that witness is to take place in all the world. Indeed, it's to begin at Jerusalem, and then it's to expand outward like ripples on a pond, embracing Judea and Samaria, which lay next at hand, and then overflowing beyond those known communities, even to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. Now, this uh, version of the Great Commission occurs, as we well know, in a context that occurs in a story, and the story involves a misconception of Christ's plan by the disciples. I want to talk about the commission itself, but we'll understand it better if we look at the misunderstanding the disciples had. Jesus had just told them that the time was coming when they'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the disciples whose minds were not on spiritual things, and who were still thinking about an earthly kingdom, asked the Lord, apparently just before his ascension, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, we know what's involved. They had in mind, because they were an occupied country chiefly, that when God would send his Messiah, and they believed that Jesus was that Messiah, that the Messiah would drive out the occupying power. The Romans were the power, so the Messiah would drive them out, and he'd set up a throne of David once again. Now, Jesus had taught them differently, of course. He taught them that they were always misunderstanding what the kingdom was all about. Why well, he said, you know, the kingdom is in the midst of you. I'm the kingdom, or I'm recognized the kingdom has come, but they didn't get that. They, they were thinking of this different kind of kingdom, and here at the very end, you see, even after all of the teaching, after the death, after the resurrection, after the 40 days in which he had certainly instructed them about the gospel and showed how all of the Old Testament led up to what he had done there in the days of his flesh in Jerusalem, they still had this question. Lord, now that's all very nice, they were saying, and we don't understand it all, but if you say those are the things you had to do, well, that's all right, we accept that. But what we really want to know is this, is that now the time when you're going to establish this kingdom that we have hoped for all these years. Notice that when Jesus replied to them, he didn't say, as we might have expected him to reply, really now have we come to this point, you still don't understand this matter of the kingdom? Don't you understand that there's not going to be an earthly kingdom? We might have expected him to say that, but in point of fact, he didn't. I, I think this is a crucial verse for understanding prophecy. People will disagree with me in some cases, but I noticed that what he said was not there will never be an earthly kingdom. He simply said that that is in the future, in an indefinite future, in a time not known to them, though certainly known to God. But, he said, in the meantime, there's another task for you. That's the equivalent, it seems, in my judgment, of saying that God will at one time in the future establish an earthly kingdom for Israel. I think there are prophecies that indicate that, and I think it has its own significance. But what he said was, 
Whether or not that comes, and whenever that may come, your task now is to establish something quite different. You're to go out into the world and preach the kingdom when it's not the kind of kingdom you're thinking about. It's the kingdom I came to establish by my death and resurrection. Now notice what Jesus Christ teaches about the kingdom. First, he teaches that it's to be a spiritual kingdom. When Jesus spoke of the spiritual nature of the kingdom, get this, understand this, he, he didn't just use the word spiritual, though he could have. He could have said, it's a spiritual kingdom I have in mind, but he actually said, it's a kingdom that is going to be established through the power of the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is divine. In other words, he was saying, this is going to be God's kingdom. Whenever you use the word spiritual, you see, you have to think along those lines. We sometimes take that word spiritual and we don't even understand what it means. We, we, we think, well, it, it refers to somebody who's not in touch with life, somebody who's unrealistic, who's living in the clouds, who might very well retreat to a monastery. Those are the spiritual people. Listen, that which is spiritual is what the Holy Spirit does. And what the Holy Spirit does is all important. The reason it's important is that it lasts. So when Jesus said, you see, we're going to have a kingdom, but the kingdom is going to be one established by the Holy Spirit, he was teaching a very, very important thing. And then secondly, I want you to see that he was talking about a powerful kingdom. The word he uses is significant. It's translated power. And in some versions of this text, as well as in Matthew, where an identical combination of words occurs, you sometimes find the word power twice. The New International Version does it right. It translates the first word authority, which you find in verse 7, is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And then the second word is translated power, and that's what you find in verse 8, but you will receive power. Now, in the Greek language, that word is dunamis. We know how that word came into the English language because years ago when, when this scientist Nobel, who uh, give, has given his name to the Nobel Prizes that are given each year in Sweden for distinguished work in literature and the sciences, uh, when he made his great discovery, a discovery of a, of a kind of, of power that the world had never known before, he had as a friend a Greek scholar, and he asked the Greek scholar what the Greek word was for explosive power. And his friend who knew Greek said, well, in the Greek language, that word is dunamis. Well, he said, I'm going to call my discovery by that name. And so we got our word dynamite. Dynamite is what Nobel discovered. We've taken the same word and applied it to a machine that is able to produce electricity, electrical power. We call it a dynamo and uh, so on, and the word is passed into our language, but that's the word that occurs here. It, it refers not to the kind of power one has by an intrinsic or a delegated authority, though that's a very important kind of power, but it refers here in this text to what we would have to call explosive power. It's a kind of power, if I can use that language, that changes things. Now let me say, and say it clearly, that that is not political power. That's what the disciples wanted. They said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to set up a political machine? Now, if you're going to talk about power, that's power. We can understand that. Why, uh, a, a political 
kingdom is a kingdom ruled by a king, and the king collects money, and the king uses his money to equip an army, and an army enforces his will. That's the kind of power we understand. And Jesus said, in effect, no, you see, what I'm talking about is power. And that power is power that flows from the very character and will of God. What is it that really changes the world? If I were speaking in secular terms to a secular audience, I could say, and say quite rightly, it's always the power of an idea. It's not armies that change the world. It's not money that changes the world. It's not laws that change the world. We, above all people, should know that because we passed a law forbidding the sale of alcohol in the time of prohibition didn't change a thing. As a matter of fact, it did just what Paul said the law does. It encouraged people to sin. There was more traffic and liquor in those days than it ever existed beforehand. Laws aren't what does it. It's an idea. It's when an idea possesses people's minds. If you're speaking in secular terms, the idea of freedom has been powerfully effective and still runs wild today. It's the idea that men can be free, that they have a right to make their own decisions and determine their destiny. Something like that, when it grips the minds of men and women, does change things. And if I may say so, the political process only follows along. Sometimes people ride to what we call power on the crest of an idea. Generally, that's how presidents get elected. It's not because their ideas are better than anybody else's, but they tap into the idea that happens to be most dominant, most in the minds of the people in the months leading up to the election. That's the way it happens. As I say, if I were talking in political terms, that's the way I'd talk. But if I'm talking in spiritual terms, I would say what really changes things is the power of the gospel when by that gospel the Holy Spirit regenerates fallen sinful men and women causing them to repent of sin, seek after righteousness, and live for Jesus Christ, the Lord of righteousness, wherever he has placed them. Where that happens, it happens in a big way. Then you have Reformation, and nothing else ever accomplishes that anywhere at any time. So that's the second thing. Our Lord talked about a spiritual kingdom. Unless we might say, as we sometimes do, oh, just a spiritual kingdom, he points out that it's a dynamic spiritual kingdom. One that is powerful with the very power of God. Now, there's a third thing. This kingdom is also a kingdom of truth. You recall that just a page or so earlier in our Bibles, this is recorded as having come out clearly at the trial of Jesus Christ. The trial of Christ before Pilate is recorded in John 18 and 19. And in the 18th chapter, Pilate is interrogating Jesus about his kingdom. The Jews had accused him of wanting to be a king. A king would be construed as one who was trying to set himself up in opposition to Caesar. And Pilate began to ask him about that. Pilate said several times, are you a king? And Jesus answered in a way he didn't understand, so he asked it again. Are you a king? And finally, Jesus answered in words that Pilate understood. Jesus said, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world. And where you expect him to say, to be a king, and to raise up followers and an army and drive out Caesar, he actually says, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So he said, I'm a king, but I'm a king of truth, and my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And when Pilate heard that, he finally got what it was all about. Oh, that, he said, 
and he dismissed it entirely. What is truth? He said, nobody understands what truth is. You're a philosopher who's out on a dream. But you see, that's what Jesus is still saying here. How do we know? We know because what he tells them to do is to be his witnesses. Money is a tool, and you can have all sorts of money and miss the thing entirely. The second thing we sometimes do, a second error, is to think that the way we advance the gospel is by law, which is also to say by force. Now, we have two forms of that. We have a social action form. This is the kind of thing that is mostly characteristic of the liberal churches, but many of the evangelical churches get into it as well. They say the way to advance the kingdom of God is to change the country's laws. Now, let me say I'm not against changing the country's laws. Certainly, if they're bad laws, they should be changed for better laws, and I think there are examples where that should be done in our own country. But you see, changing the laws does not in itself advance the kingdom. It's the other way. Where the kingdom advances, the laws follow, but changing the laws does not produce it. And you can understand why in a minute. What is law? Law is force. You get a state to change the laws, then the power of the state, the power of arms, which boils down in the final analysis to the power of the policeman with the gun, or the FBI, or the Federal Bureau of Investigation in all its various forms, it boils down to that, that the law is going to be enforced by that secular power of the state. And you know as well as I do that when you talk about changes within the heart and minds of people, spiritual changes, that is not something that can be accomplished by any force of arms. Let me say we have a particularly evangelical form of that, something seen, I think, in a very discouraging way in the Reformed churches. We think that we accomplish the same thing in our churches by law. That is, we exalt a rigid understanding, sometimes of the Old Testament particulars, and say, well, now, this is what we're going to force upon our people. And we have a, a phenomenon in our day which I, which I think is a dreadful one of disciplining people within the context of the church for their failure to adhere to a particular interpretation of something in the Old Testament on the authority of no one greater than the particular leaders of that church. Don't anybody misunderstand me. I'm not against spiritual discipline. Another great error of the church is that we have failed in that, where there's clear violation of the moral law of God. There must be discipline for the sake of the soul of the individual involved. And where we do is I regret to say some of our churches are doing, insist upon our particular interpretation and force it by the legalistic actions of a session or some other church board. We are not serving Christ's kingdom. We're simply building our own. We're being worldly at that point, at the very point when we ought to be most spiritual. Let me say also that there is an error in which some are falling into today, and this is the error of thinking that the kingdom of God is advanced by what we call the miraculous, by what are sometimes called by those who speak of it signs and wonders. The argument goes where the Holy Spirit is active, there signs and wonders follow. And so in the church today, that's what we should see. We should look for those signs and wonders. We want healings and we want miraculous demonstrations of the Spirit's power. Now let me, let me be clear about that. If that is what we're looking for, we are off base, because that's not what Jesus is talking about. What does Jesus say? When you receive this supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and this Holy Spirit and His power begins to work in you, what is the result of the Spirit's working? Miracles, 
signs, the miraculous. That's not at all what he talks about. What does he say? When the Holy Spirit is at work, you will be my witnesses. Some years ago, I studied all of the occurrences of the phrase filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts. There are about a dozen of them. And I looked at them, all, all the circumstances in which that occurred, and I examined those passages to see what was in common among the twelve, because where the Holy Spirit works, something should follow. And if you're going to do that, it's an interesting study, I give you the answer in advance. The thing that ties all those passages together, and which is evidence of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in his people, is that when those involved were spirit-filled, they immediately set out to witness to Jesus Christ. And that is by words. They bore testimony to what he's done in their lives, and this is what the Lord used. You see, we're talking here of the power of God's Word as God's people testify to it to those who need to hear. You know what it says in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, verse 11. It's speaking about the onslaughts of the devil, and it's saying of the saints, they overcame him, that is the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. So you want to be spirit-filled? You want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in this age? Testify to Jesus Christ. You say, but I stammer. Doesn't matter. Holy Spirit doesn't stammer. You say, but I make mistakes. That's all right. Holy Spirit will make them forget the errors you make. You say, but I don't know my Bible well enough. Well, work at it. But in the meantime, testify to the portions of it you know. The last point of this study of the Great Commission is the easiest one because it goes back to what I said at the beginning. Not only is this a spiritual kingdom, a powerful kingdom, and a kingdom of truth, it's also a universal or worldwide kingdom. To all the nations, so it involves all people and races, and it's to advance into all the regions of the world. Our obedience to the Great Commission starts here, and in many cases it starts tonight, as you have an opportunity in simple terms to tell others what Jesus did and what the gospel is and what it means for them. Don't think that's unimportant. That is the most important thing in the world. Now, our Father, we ask you to bless this text to us by our understanding first, but above all, as it seizes upon our hearts and minds and actually motivates us and carries us out to tell, tell of what we know. And our Father, we pray that you'd bless that, but even as we pray, we know you will because you have said that that's your plan, that people just like us might bear that gospel wherever you send us, and that by that means you establish that greatest of all kingdoms, the kingdom of God, even in the midst of the secular kingdoms of this world. Amen and amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of Dr. James Boyce.
Jesus' instruction to those he encountered after the resurrection was to go and tell others. We know it as the Great Commission. How should his instructions play out in our lives today? Find out through our free CD offer entitled, The Great Commission. It's another message by Dr. Boyce. This free CD is our gift to you. Simply call 1-800-488-1888 and we'll be happy to send you a copy of The Great Commission. That number again is 1-800-488-1888. Our loyal listeners play a vital role in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ through Dr. Boyce's messages. And you can be part of this great ministry as you partner with us here at the Bible Study Hour. Visit our website at thebiblestudyhour.org. If you prefer, you may call us directly at 1-800-488-1888. And finally, our postal address is 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. We want to thank you for your prayerful and financial support. Dr. Boyce's in-depth Bible teaching would often continue far beyond the 26-minute length of our broadcast. Full-length messages from the Bible Study Hour are available on the app and at Reformed Resources, our online store. Connect to both from thebiblestudyhour.org. I'm Mark Daniels, and I'm glad you listened in. The very name of the book of Acts seems to speak of action and the reader would expect to encounter that action as the story begins. But Jesus, as he left his disciples, instructed them to wait. Join Dr. James Boyce as he explores the reason for Jesus' command and why waiting is often the greatest form of obedience, yielding the greatest increase. That's next time on The Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.